Lieutenant, thanks for being with us. That was Lieutenant Frank Salcedo of the Beverly Hills Police Department saying that some arrests have been made on the border of Beverly Hills, not in his city, but reports of looting and arrests being made just outside Beverly Hills. And there you can see... March 3rd, 1991, after a lengthy high-speed car chase, five white officers of the Los Angeles Police Department are videotaped beating, kicking, tasering, and hog-tying Rodney King. April 29th, 1992, after seven days of jury deliberations, four officers and one sergeant are acquitted on police brutality charges for said beating. Outside the courthouse, protesters gathered and unrest grew. For the next five days, the city of Los Angeles would burn. Stores would be looted. Cars would be smashed and overturned. People would be beaten. When all was said and done, 63 people were dead and over 2,300 were injured. An estimated $1 billion of damage, mostly centered around Koreatown, would change the city of Angels forever. My name is Anthony King, and I'm telling the stories behind your favorite cop movies. This is the all-new Neon Badges. Caldecott Cotty Chubb is a producer whose credits include films like Hoffa, The Crow, Mallrats, Eve's Bayou, and Pootie Tang. He had a treatment for a script in his hands that was 105 pages long called Plague Season by novelist James Elroy about police corruption centered around the Watts riots of 1965 in L.A. Chubb and his producing partner tried for years to develop the story, but financiers they met with all thought it was too tough. But then they got two names attached to the treatment, which, by the way, had zero dialogue that piqued investor interest. Those two names? Writer-director Ron Shelton and actor Kurt Russell. Ron Shelton was born on September 15, 1945. He spent four years of his young adulthood in the Baltimore Orioles minor league farm system as an infielder and after retiring picked up pen and paper and started writing. He worked for several uncredited years fixing scripts and doing rewrites until he was 35 when he sold his first script for a movie called Under Fire, directed by Roger Spottiswood, where Shelton also assistant directed. He teamed with Spottiswood once again, writing and ADing The Best of Times, and in 1988 Shelton took the lead of his own movie with Kevin Costner, Tim Robbins, and Susan Sarandon called Bull Durham. For those keeping track and needing a little inspiration, Ron Shelton was already into his 40s by this point in his life. He continued writing and directing with films like White Men Can't Jump, Tin Cup, and Play It to the Bone, not always directing everything he wrote, but always writing everything he directed. And then he got a call from Cotty Chubb asking if he'd be interested in directing a non-sports movie he wouldn't be writing. I don't know, said Shelton. Who else is involved? We got this kid rewriting Elroy's story, and then Kurt Russell wants to do it. I'm in, said Shelton. Russell was born on March 17, 1951 in Springfield, Massachusetts. His dad, Bing Russell, was an actor and former baseball player, and his mom was a dancer. He says in his family you did two things. You played baseball and you acted. So Russell began acting on television at the age of 11 on shows like Dennis the Menace, The Dick Powell Theater, and Sam Benedict, and in 1963 booked his first movie. It was a film called It Happened at the World's Fair starring Elvis Presley. In Russell's scene, Elvis offers him a quarter to kick him in the shins so he can get closer to this nurse. Russell followed his big movie debut by being cast as the title character in the ABC Western series The Travels of Jamie McFeeders. The show only lasted one season, but it got him noticed. And keep in mind, this was all just natural talent. Okay, maybe some genetics too. But Russell never had acting lessons. In fact, he never even had that moment in his life where he said, I want to be an actor. I want to be an actor. 
It just happened. His parents never condoned watching TV, so Kurt never really had any acting influences either. Because of that and his natural charisma, he just went out and did his own thing. So then in 1966, Kurt signed a 10-year contract with the Walt Disney Company where he became the studio's top star of the 70s. He became so famous that at one time he received 40,000 pieces of fan mail. Because of this, he got to know the man himself, Walt Disney, really well. They'd play ping pong together, Disney would take Kurt all around the different departments explaining filmmaking to him, Disney would show Kurt upcoming films and ask his advice. Kurt says, I had no problem giving him my honest answer. The original cut of Mary Poppins was even changed because of Kurt. But one thing became evident to him as it pertained to the rest of Hollywood. When I worked at Walt Disney's studio, you were not hip. You weren't cool. There was no cool thing to Walt Disney. So Kurt walked away from his full-time acting career and did the other thing he did in the Russell household. He played baseball. While this was the first time he changed career paths, it wouldn't be the last. From 1970 to 1973, Kurt Russell played second base in the California Angels minor league system. He started having problems with his shoulder though, and during one game, a runner clipped his arm as he was turning a double play, causing his baseball career to end prematurely. Kurt remembers going to the doctor. He said, aren't you also an actor? I said, yeah. And he said, well, you're an actor all the time now. Understandably, this was devastating to Kurt. He spent the next three days sobbing until he went back to work on a movie set. Kurt spent the next 30 years acting in films and television. During this time, he struck up a friendship with director John Carpenter, appearing in his three favorite roles of his career. Snake Plissken in Escape from New York, McCready in The Thing, and Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China. Every 10 years or so, Kurt would get burned out and take a break. One time, he even moved to Colorado. I was going to raise cattle, raise horses, teach skiing, and guide hunting. Those are the things I know how to do. I was living my life, but he'd always end up back in front of the camera. You gonna kill me now, Snake? I'm too tired. Maybe later. With Shelton and Russell on board, Chubb needed someone to actually write the damn script. For that, he turned to a young full-time electrician and part-time script doctor named David Ayer. After reading a script Ayer had written titled Training Day, Chubb said, If anybody can rewrite James Elroy and give it cinema, it's this guy. David Ayer was born in Champaign, Illinois on January 18, 1968 and grew up in Bloomington, Minnesota in Bethesda, Maryland. He was kicked out of his house by his parents as a teenager and ended up living with his cousin in South Central L.A. Ayer dropped out of high school and started painting houses for a living before enlisting in the Navy as a submarine sonar technician. After his stint in the military, he started working as an electrician. One day, he went to wire up a screenwriter's house. While he was working, Ayer entertained his clients with stories of the sea. So the screenwriter talked him into writing a script because he thought Ayer had something to say. So he goes off to write his first script and thinks, I'll sell this for a million dollars and I'll never have to work again. I was really, really wrong, he says. He didn't have any Hollywood connections, so his passion and his patience to see things through really paid off. In 1995, he wrote a script on spec called Training Day, which he used as his calling card. Based off of that, he started getting hired for rewrites. He was hired to rewrite The Fast and the Furious, SWAT, and U571, and then his original script for Training Day really started making the rounds. That's when Cotty Chubb called. So Ayer got Elroy's original treatment for Plague Season and made it his own, including changing the title to Dark Blue. he primarily only written and directed sports movies, Ron Shelton was still attracted to this story. I'm certainly interested in people who are on the outs, he says. I'm interested in truth-telling, the power of it, and the messiness of it. Elroy's story was intriguing, but again, there was no dialogue there. It was novelistic. So after reading Training Day, Shelton was thrilled to be able to work with David Ayer. 
Ayer went through Elroy's story and tried to make it more movie-like. He focused on which characters and storylines would have the most impact. He consolidated characters and changed several more scenarios for cinematic draw. Holland's assistant, for example, was originally a male character, so Ayer changed it to a woman and added a little backstory about their affair. Or the character of Bobby Keogh. He was originally much older. Ayer rewrote him as more of a rookie, so he'd be more susceptible to Eldon Perry's magic. Ayer says his mantra in writing is to make everything personal, to make it so claustrophobic and bring it in, make the circle of friends as small as possible. It's all about the efficiency of the script. Ayer was also fascinated by the character of Eldon Perry. He says, A man like Eldon Perry, someone almost genetically predisposed to his attitudes and mentality, can change, can see the truth. If the scales can fall from that guy's eyes and he can change and have an honest transformation, then there's hope for all of us. And as far as writing and developing that character, Ayer says he didn't really have any other actor in mind than Kurt Russell since he was already attached. So this movie became a character study pretty quickly, not just a cop movie. Shelton loved Ayer's script and, with Kurt's blessing, tried to humanize Eldon Perry even more. He tried to turn him into a man wrestling with the devil and losing. And Kurt says, There was something about the importance of the message in the screenplay. Eldon Perry is a risky character, a character you can hate and like in some instances, but in the end, I hope you find some empathy for him. So with a script, a director, their lead, and a little money, it came time to start casting. For the role of Perry's young partner, Bobby Keogh, Shelton says they auditioned a parade of other actors, but they all seemed to come in with a braggadocio attitude. And then they read a young Canadian actor who had primarily done TV work, including breaking out in the WB's Felicity named Scott Speedman. Michael Michelle read for the role of Beth Williamson, Holland's assistant and Keogh's lover. Shelton had auditioned Michelle years ago and saw how much she had grown in her ability and talent. He said she had a unique combination of grace and strength. For the role of assistant police chief Holland, they offered the role to Ving Rhames, one of the few actors you think of with intelligence, character, strength, charisma, and rectitude, says Shelton. For our main antagonist, Jack Van Meter, Shelton had remembered first seeing Brendan Gleeson's remarkable performance in The General. Shelton considered Gleeson one of the great actors in the world and called him in Ireland to offer him the role. But when Gleeson showed up for production and started preparing, Kurt came up to Shelton and he said, We have a problem. I'm not scared of him. I can't be scared of a guy only a couple years older than me. He's got to be my father's age. So Shelton asked Gleason if they could put him in aging makeup, which he happily obliged. For the role of Daryl Orchard, one of Van Meter's henchmen, Shelton auditioned a rapper named Corrupt. He'd been in the middle of recording an album that day and came in over his lunch break to read sides with Shelton. Except when he showed up, he didn't have a script on him. Shelton was annoyed, of course. Jesus, this guy's gonna waste my fucking time here. So he offers him a script and Corrupt says, I have a script. It's all right here. And he points to his head. He'd memorize the whole damn thing. And a small side note, the homeless man who shot on the sidewalk at the beginning is Wayne King Sr., one of the very first black stuntmen. It's on videotape. You can't fuck with that. If they go down, they going down. If they go down, I'll buy you some good old-fashioned black pussy. If them motherfuckers walk up, you gotta spot me a hoe. And I don't want no white hoe either, nigga. I want a Puerto Rican. Where you gonna find Puerto Rican in LA, man? I'm gonna get you some Mexican shit. I don't want no clumsy ass Mexican nigga. Owe me a badass Puerto Rican bitch. I don't give a fuck if you gotta swim. The film opens with footage of the car chase that led to Rodney King's arrest and beating. While the footage of the beating is the actual home video footage shot by George Holiday, the preceding car chase footage is actually a recreation staged by Shelton and crew, all shot on regular home video cameras to give it that real-life feeling. And in Ayer's original script, he actually had the King beating at the end, but Shelton liked the idea of using actual news footage in the background as sort of a ticking clock, all ending with Perry looking out over his burning city. Shelton, Ayer, and Russell had all grown up in L.A. They were all there for the riots in 92. 
A remembers it being business as usual, unfortunately. The difference being that it was just videotaped. While they all love their city, Shelton says the film's not a love letter to LA. It's a view of LA. They worked very hard on that burned out LA look. He wanted to make sure that's what the audience saw in every frame. LA as a third world city with an urban western unfolding and the city on fire. He had a very distinct look he wanted. They were shooting for cheap, 15 million dollars, and Shelton and Kurt were barely even taking paychecks because they believed in the project. He and DP Barry Peterson had a specific look they were going for. Peterson said, Ron said two things to me. I want to go to the ugliest places in LA and make it look the best we can. They shot with certain kinds of tobacco filters and on Super 35, which means they shot with the spherical lenses, then blew it up to anamorphic widescreen and post. Within that process, then, you pick up a sort of graininess, which in turn added to that specific view of LA Shelton had in mind. I want you to feel the images rather than to see the tricks, he says. Production shot at one of the most dangerous housing projects in South Central. So dangerous, in fact, that one of the beat cops came up to Shelton and said, I can't believe you're shooting here. That's the scene where they pick up Master P. He'd flown in that morning for his scenes and word had gotten around that he'd be there. Hundreds and hundreds of people had gathered on set just to get a glimpse of him. A train was passing by while they were filming the scene of him being arrested and a woman shouts out the window, Not fair! So he shot his two scenes and flew out that same night. The very next day, somebody was murdered outside that building. And then two days later, it burned down to the ground. They were shooting in tough neighborhoods. The raid where Perry and Keo and the SWAT team killed the two Patsy suspects was shot down around Chinatown. They had to canvas the neighborhood a half mile in all directions to let everyone know they'd be filming there at night. They only had three night shoots and they were the final days of production. Instead of setting up several different spotlights, Peterson used a moonlight, a giant cube beaming out 80,000 watts that would shoot light in all directions. And then for the shots of the helicopter spot, they didn't use a helicopter at all. They had a giant condor crane with a 4K lamp strapped to the cherry picker with someone just wiggling it to make it look like a spotlight. Light. Or the Hollywood Center Motel, where Perry is staying after he and his wife split. The motel's made up of little cabins measuring about 10 by 10 foot. It was so small, Peterson had to shoot the master shot, the, the wide shot that shows the whole space, through the window. And during the close-ups, they used a handheld camera because they couldn't fit anything else in there. So it was Peterson holding a flashlight to illuminate Kurt's eyes, the camera operator, the assistant cameraman, the sound man, and a grip all huddled together, shuffling around and following Kurt. <laughs> Scenes at Orchard and Sidwell's house and the riot were shot down in the Wilmington neighborhood of LA. Shelton loved that location and says you can't find anywhere else like it in America. That looks like LA to me, he says. He always saw Dark Blue as an urban western. A good sheriff gone bad. It's too late to undo the damage done, but never too late to change his ways. For the shot where Keo's gunned down, Shelton remembers Scott Speedman asking him, How do I play dead? Shelton says to him, just stop breathing when I say. And when Michael Michelle's character scolds Perry, you see Kurt's skin and jowls just start to sag. It happens here and two other times. When Van Meter tells Perry and Keo to find two patsies to blame for the Jack of Hearts murder, and when his wife leaves him. Shelton says Kurt's ability to act with his face alone is one of the most remarkable things he's ever seen. During the restaging of the riots, production had control three blocks. Of the 44 days of filming, they shot that sequence in just two days. And they only had four weeks of prep with hardly any time for 
rehearsal, so everything was meticulously planned out. For this sequence in particular, Cotty Chubb says they laid it out like a map. It was very choreographed and organized in order to make it look disorganized. He says it was like a military campaign, planned out stunt by stunt, moment by moment, and shot by shot well in advance. And by the way, Kurt did all of his own stunt driving. They had hours and hours and hours of footage to draw on from the actual riots, which they spent weeks studying in order to reinvent the type of lunacy and rage shown in the news footage. They used a handheld camera to give it that feeling of chaos, and like I mentioned earlier, attempted to show LA as a third world city. Beirut in the 60s, El Salvador in the 70s, Bosnia in the 90s. And everything that was staged was shot. As far as community reaction, Shelton says the neighborhood felt there was something cathartic about addressing something that really hadn't been addressed in film or TV since 1992. For the final scene where Perry goes to the academy and confesses everything, Shelton says he likes the messiness of the scene. The attempt to bring Van Meter down without tying it all up nice and neat was a struggle. Like real acts of redemption, it's sloppy and inconclusive, he says. Throughout the entire film, but especially here, they tried to keep everything straightforward and simple because it benefits the story. In his monologue, which, by the way, was three pages long, Perry essentially tells the entire history of the LAPD, talking about how it was a frontier town the Wild West, to how, as a child, he and his father winged protesters in the Watts riots, to how they do things now in 92. And Kurt delivered that speech flawlessly, time after time, take after take. Shelton struggled at first with how to make that scene compelling. It's just one guy talking for three minutes. But he says it's about a man coming apart and telling the truth. And Shelton realized truth-telling can be about the most dramatic thing there is. And I gotta tell you, I made a career going after the worst, most dangerous, parasitic sons of bitches to walk this planet. And I was happier than the devil in hell because I'd fabricate evidence if I wanted to bring some asshole in or I'd, I'd lie on reports and... I'd lie to investigators and I'd sure as hell stretch the truth in court. And uh, if anybody messed with us, we just, we just muscled them, right, Jack? Or, or blackmailed them. I mean, what the hell? Everybody's got a secret. It's a tough job. But I was, I was a good soldier. Production wrapped and it was sent to the cutting room and Shelton's frequent editors, Patrick Flannery and Paul Sador. Like William Friedkin says how he uses the editing room as an experimental bin where he can discover new things, Shelton and his editors discovered some things themselves. First of all, there was obviously more there than the story needed. For instance, there was a lot more exploring and developing the background of the assistant Chief Holland's marriage. And there was a scene where Perry and Keogh go back to the Jack of Hearts and discover the hole in the wall where the safe used to be. There was a lot more procedural stuff that just wasn't necessary. This was more of a character study, remember, than a cop movie. And plus, there's plenty of procedural stories on TV that do a much better job than movies because of the time given to an entire show. And then there were two major changes in scene placement. The scene of Perry in the hotel room. While the actual scene takes place at the opening of the third act, Shelton wanted to take a portion of that and move it to the very beginning. Right from the get-go now, we see a man dealing with some sort of reckoning. Shelton told Kurt he wanted to make sure this character lived in the gray area. Perry was simply caught up in the culture. And then the scene of Van Meter's reveal, where we're shown that he's the real bad guy, came later in the original storyline. Shelton decided to move it up, though, in order to give the audience the opportunity to know things Perry doesn't. Classic Hitchcock. We now look at Elton Perry differently. He may draw his moral lines differently than us, but ultimately he's not an evil man. I mean, he is, but he's just a foot soldier. He's not really calling the shots. Where's the safe? Dump that shit. Where's the money? Give me all the money now, or I'll put you back in your cages. Dark Blue opened on February 21st, 2003 on more than 2,000 screens. 
It opened alongside Todd Phillips' Old School, The Life of David Gale with Kevin Spacey and Kate Winslet, and Gods and Generals, the follow-up to Gettysburg. That first weekend brought in only $1.2 million in mixed reviews from critics. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone gave it 3 out of 4 stars, saying, Director Ron Shelton, best known for sports flicks, brings a powerhouse punch to this police drama. Kurt Russell digs into the juiciest role of his career. Shelton, who stages the electrifying climax against the 1992 L.A. riots ignited by the verdict in the Rodney King case, starts more fires of character and incident than he can handle. No matter, Dark Blue is a film of wounding power. It stays with you. Ella Taylor of LA Weekly was less enthused, calling it hyperkinetic with incestuously proliferating plots, and saying Kurt Russell played Eldon Perry with feral incandescence. She goes on, I've seen Dark Blue twice, and I still don't have a handle on all of its comings and goings. It is stuffed to the gills with blithely improbable coincidence and subsidiary storylines. Shelton is a likable, generous director who's made two pretty good films, but it's not at all clear he has the chops to take on an action movie. Dark Blue struggles to be at once realist and utopian. And Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times with three out of four stars. Dark Blue is a formula picture in its broad outlines, but a very particular film in its characters and details. It doesn't redeem the formula or even tinker with it very much, but in a performance by Kurt Russell and in some location work on Angry Streets, it has something to say in an urgent way of saying it. The movie surrounds this situation with a lot of other material too much so that it sometimes feels hurried. It follows well-worn pathways, but it has a literate, colloquial screenplay by David David Ayer, whose dialogue sounds as if someone might actually say it, and the direction is by Ron Shelton, who marches us right up to the cliches and then pulls them out from under us. Dark Blue is not a great movie, but it has moments that go off the meter and find visceral impact. Ron Shelton believes this is Kurt Russell's lifetime performance, saying Kurt is avoiding all the cliches of a dirty cop in cinema. Shelton continues to write and direct with films like Hollywood Homicide, Bad Boys 2, and Just Getting Started. David Ayer continues to write and is now directing with films like End of Watch, Fury, Suicide Squad, and Bright. And Kurt Russell continues to be one of the world's most beloved actors. He's one of Quentin Tarantino's go-tos. He's part of the Fast and Furious and Marvel Cinematic Universes. If I'd had a different career, he says, I don't think I'd have been very interested. So I think I had to do what I had to do. Thank you for your support of Neon Badges. I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for all of you. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at AK Donnelly. That's A-K-D-O-N-E-L-L-Y. My name is Anthony King, and I'll see you all next time.